0: It is uh, amusing how passages hit you differently at different kind of phases of life. You know, you have different experiences, different things going on in your head or in your heart, uh, in your life around, and you come to a passage and it it reads a little differently than it has in the past. Certainly this is the case for me. A house divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. heard the chuckle because someone's already figured out my introduction. We're in the process of building a house. Friday, they put the first walls up, and so the first floor has framing done, and they're starting to run the rafters, uh, the second floor uh, to sit on, and it's amazing as you kind of walk through the house and see, in some ways, what little amounts of stuff there is that actually supports the second floor. It's really kind of surprising, it's amazing to me. But I guess in a new way, thinking about, you know, one of the things that I, I never would have really been concerned about before, but I'm suddenly really concerned about now, is that all of the workers are operating off the same set of plans. I mean, you don't ever think about those kind of things. I mean, I guess all y'all in the construction industry do think about those kind of things, but I never think about those kind of things. Like, are all of the guys and gals that are going to be building my house actually trying to build the same house? In fact, actually, we already kind of ran into our first question with that, where we have an exterior door going out of the garage, and we have bricks about shin high through that door. Hmm, that's interesting. Did they intend to do that? Or was somebody building the wrong house? Were they building the neighbor's house and just happened to do it on my piece of property? For the house to be successful, for it to be what we want it to be, everyone needs to be building the same house. Now, obviously, the point that Jesus is making is much bigger and much greater, but it is interesting how much just a little bit more emotional punch it has when it's like, oh, yes, this is what I'm going to be moving into in just a few weeks, a few months, I hope they built it well. This passage here is familiar, and I've said all along, familiar passages in many ways are much more difficult to preach than uncommon ones. It's easy to preach out of the middle of Leviticus because you have no idea what I'm talking about, and it's all new. But we come to a passage like this, and we're like, oh yeah, I get it, I understand it. I remember the C.S. Lewis quote, I know all about this. This section is a section dealing with the idea of faith. What does it mean to be on Jesus' team? What does it mean to believe in Christ? What does it mean to have faith? It starts in verse 20, continuing his ministry. And it's the part of his Galilean ministry where it's being very successful numerically. We get him going back home to Capernaum and the crowd is gathering again and they're gathering so much that they can't even eat. I don't know what that crowd exactly looks like, but I know it's big. It's active. It's an energetic crowd. There's a whole lot going on. There's people everywhere. There's conversations taking place. It's a buzz. And while it's happening, verse 21 is family heard it. That term could mean anything from associates to close friends to family all the way to parents. It's a wide kind of semantic range. They inject family here because that's probably the most generic term. I suspect it's probably like extended family. They hear the hubbub. They hear uh, not the noise from the party per se, but they hear all of the, the story of what's taking place, again, in a small town uh, where not a lot happens and there's a huge crowd at someone's house. Everybody's going to know it. A better illustration for kind of today is uh, you ever had that moment in the middle of the night or like late in the evening where either an ambulance or a police car goes down your street and it has to park out in front of somebody's house? What does every single person in the neighborhood do? everybody suddenly has to go check their mail at 10.30 on a Sunday night <laughs> because they want to see what's happening. Family does the same thing, see what's happening with Jesus. And you get this kind of challenge from them. He's out of his mind. The impression that you get is so far they've been kind of going along with them. I suspect the issue here is not so much what he's doing, it's an issue of scale. Look, it was fine when Jesus wanted to be this small time, petty little Messiah. It was fine, like we wanted to be like a, a local hero. But, like, he's got real people paying attention to him now. He's got a, he's got a, a real group of folks. Has he lost his mind? Does he know what he's actually doing? Surely he oh, he's got to be going crazy. It's that that serves as the backdrop for the next two conversations that are going to be a bit more significant. It's the backdrop of a question of what is faith? Is it an issue of, well, I'll go along with Jesus maybe this far, but I'll stop there and not go this far? Or is it going with Jesus all the way to the end? Here you have family and friends questioning, oh man, what is he doing? And in the midst of their questioning, the bad guys show up. Da da da, and then music changes, switches to the minor key. If it was an art film, you know, might go into slow motion or black and white or something to clue you in. The scribes are here. In fact, actually, they've actually come down from Jerusalem. So these aren't just local bad guys; these are national bad guys. This is again makes sense of the the statement that the family's just made. He's out of his mind. It's like. Is he paying attention to who he's ticking off? Like, does he realize the enemies that he's making? He's not just irritating like his neighbors now. He's irritated the president. I have a friend who used to be very active on Twitter and loved to be a bit of a troll and uh, started tweeting the White House back several years ago. I was like, dude, do you not realize you're on every watch list ever now? You've ticked off the wrong friends, man. Same thing here the bad guys have come. They've come all the way from Jerusalem and they come in saying something shocking. He is possessed by the prince of demons. And he uses this power of the demons to cast out more demons. Now, this is more than just an accusation. That's important to get when we look at this. Is It's more than just an accusation of, oh, look, Jesus is a bad guy. I mean, it's not just name calling. This isn't, again, Twitter today where you slap fight and just call each other ugly names and then nothing ever happens. What they're doing here is not just calling him a name, but explaining the nature of how he can do what he does. This is the equivalent of the really obnoxious guy at every magician's show ever, that as the magician is doing the tricks, is going, oh, by the way, this is how he's doing it. I know that he's always there because I'm always that guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm that guy. Hey, guys, this, this Jesus, he's a fraud. He's a bad guy. He's possessed by the prince of demons, and he's using the prince of demons' power to do all of the amazing things that he's able to do. You th- he heals the sick. He's doing it by demonic power. He casts out other demons. He's doing it by demonic power. And in doing so, they make the great exchange, not the greatest exchange, but... To call evil good and good evil. That's going to be really significant here in a minute to see the nature of their accusation is to switch the roles of what good and evil actually are. 23, Jesus, having heard their accusation, calls them to him. Again, this had to have been an amazing moment. You know, the house is in turmoil, the place is crazy. Calls them to himself. All right, now we're going to have a conversation. It's time to talk. Call them to him. Said to them in parables. And again, parables. Why do you use parables? Parables were very simple stories. They were simple illustrations that are designed to function in a very specific way. That if you trust Jesus, they are supremely clear and understandable. And if you don't, They are completely mystifying and opaque. It's one of the most spectacular teaching tools in human history. And he gives them here a very quick parable, a very quick illustration to undercut their entire argument. Fellas, how can you use the power of Satan to defeat Satan? Satan. That doesn't make sense. It's like trying to put out a fire with fire. It doesn't make sense. It's trying to, like a house that is divided against itself. It's, it's like trying to say, how would it be possible for Jesus to accomplish all of these deeds that are defeating Satan using his, Satan's own power? Guys, it doesn't doesn't make any sense. A kingdom that is divided against itself, that's fighting internally, cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. It doesn't make any sense. If Satan has risen up against himself... And is divided, he can't stand. But in fact, actually, he's defeating himself. He's coming to an end. He's ending his own ridiculous reign. Doesn't make any sense. You can't fight the devil with the devil's own power. No, instead, verse 27, he offers an alternate explanation. Not their lie, not their falsehood, but the real one. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. I told the story this morning fits better here, but was good this morning as well. the guy who tried to rob the MMA fighter, the lady, you know, who was carrying her purse, and he tries to rob her, and she beat the ever-living stuffing out of the guy. Look, at it, if you want to take her purse. You have to bind the mighty Amazonian warrior in front of you because she will whoop you every time if you try to rob her. The only way to take her purse is to find some sort of way to control her, to hinder her, to limit her so that you can then take her stuff and go. Likewise, if you want to defeat Satan... You have to bind him. You have to have some sort of mechanism whereby to control him, whereby to stop him, because you can't just steal from the devil. He's more powerful than most humans, not all. More powerful than most humans. You don't just stroll into his house and boss everybody around and cast out demons and and heal the sick and raise the dead. Instead, you have to bind the strong man. Then, only then are you able to plunder his house. You see, Jesus is making a tremendous statement here. It's a statement that no human outside of him would ever be able to make. Look, Satan is that great martial artist. He has amazing power. I mean, remember, he was created to be a servant of the Lord, a creature of beauty, now an unholy glory, a terrifying power, not one to be trifled with. But in order to defeat him, you would have to have someone who can bind the someone, someone stronger, someone greater. Someone bigger, someone more powerful that could just waltz in, lock him up, and do whatever he wished. And Jesus is not stating it, but it's certainly implied. Who is it that binds the strong man? Who is it the one that is so mighty that he can defeat the mighty evil warrior? It's Jesus. Who is it that can bind the strong man, plunder his goods, plunder his entire house? Well, it's indeed Jesus Himself. You see, Jesus answers their blasphemous statement, accusing him of using demonic power, by explaining both his goodness. And his power. Explaining his goodness in that he comes from heaven. He is fighting on God's side. He's not on Satan's side. And his power, he is greater. He's bigger. He's stronger and more wonderful than the devil. The devil has no power over him. And again, just pause and think about it. This is why preaching common passages sometimes are so difficult. Because all of us in here are like, well, yeah. I mean, duh. That's why I'm in church today. That's why I don't go to the church of Satan or whatever it's called. I go to Jesus because I know he is more powerful. But to think about what that means for the humanity of Christ... So think about that temptation that he endured, fasting, fasting for such an extended period of time, hangry, except not angry, just hungry, and resisting the devil in victory. And thinking about how how short, (laughs) how short our season of victory is when temptation comes. Again, that's why we pray all the time, keep us from temptation, because we lose so quickly. Jesus, the perfect man. To think about how he's victorious over sin, he's victorious over the devil. He's victorious over all of those things that so easily seem to whoop us and have victory over us. It's not the main point of the passage, certainly, but his answer before 28 where he does turn to the main point of the passage and this one's a little bit more challenging truly i say to you this is a phrase that is uh, often used to say hey listen up listen up listen up i'm about to make a true pronouncement uh, all of his announcements are true pronouncements and Everything he says is true, but this is to clue our ears in. So we pay extra close attention. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Whoa. This has given some theologians and some commentators fits, though I don't think it actually should. I think he's making a tremendous statement about what his work is going to accomplish. What is the victory that he is going to exercise over the devil? (laughs) When he plunders the devil's house, what is he stealing away from him? What is he taking from the devil? He's taking his people. He's reclaiming from the realm of sin and death and hell his people. And he's saying, look, what I'm going to accomplish is forgiveness that covers all sins. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And I I love the addition he adds here. And whatever blasphemies they say. How tender is our Savior that he even understands like, Sometimes Christians, well-intending, are going to say terrible things, and even that will be forgiven. But, but however, that, that doesn't mean that it's blue skies for everyone. It doesn't mean that it's puppies, sunshine, unicorns, and rainbows for everyone. It doesn't mean That everything is just washed away and everyone wins in the end and actions don't matter and words don't matter. Because there is a sin that does matter. That sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is the one that has given them fits the commentators and theologians at times. Again, I don't think it should, but it does. This is the sin that Jesus himself says never has forgiveness. And that is a scary thought. This is a sin that Jesus says is an eternal sin. Whoa. I mean, I I don't want to do any sin, but I really want to make sure I don't do this sin, right? But what is it? What is this uh, eternal sin? What is this blasphemy against the Spirit? Well, he gives his own explanation. For the scribes had said, He has an unclean spirit. The scribes. The ones who were knowledgeable in the scriptures, the ones that were supposed to be the good guys, the ones who had traveled all the way from Jerusalem that knew the Old Testament, the ones that were there supposed to be teaching the people what is right and wrong and what is good and evil, suddenly and intentionally persist in calling Jesus evil and evil good. This is not an accidental misunderstanding. This isn't uh, listening to like, you know, a a six-year-old try to explain the Trinity. Accidental heresy all the time. This is a person who is willfully and intentionally blaspheming the person and work of the Lord Jesus, resisting Hardening, turning from the Lord God, and even proclaiming the very work that Jesus has done is evil. This is his answer. This is what he comes to say for their statement that he has an unclean spirit. I love how Mark tells it. Mark likes to keep the story moving. Doesn't like things to get stopped for too long and brings the entire story kind of full stop back to the very beginning, brings it full circle, I mean, back to the very beginning and ends very much where he began. (laughs) The big party, the big group, the big gathering probably got fairly awkward after that. And they're certainly understanding that Jesus has just told them that the scribes, if they persist in saying this, are persisting in their own damnation. That's not to be taken lightly and tends to not be received well when you say it at dinner. Until you get to verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. They can't get in the crowd so big. So many people that mom and brother show up, and you get the impression, uh, I, I think, here, they're not necessarily doubting Jesus, they're trying to get him away. This is, risk saying this, the loving and meddlesome mother, right? The mom who's trying to be a help, but maybe is overstepping her authority a little bit, who shows up and is like, we need to see Jesus. Send him out. No, no, no. Like you, go get Jesus and send him out. We can't get in. Send him out. So somebody yells at him, hey, Jesus, your mother, your brothers, they're outside, they're looking for you. Does, classic, uses the interruption to teach a tremendous object lesson in a way that had to have been emotionally devastating if they heard it. Who are my mother and my brothers? Would have been, I mean, initially on the surface would have been a really confusing question. Are you really actually insane? Did you forget who your mother is? Do you not know your family? He looks around at those sat around him, (laughs) not the scribes. He's just said they're going to hell looks around at his disciples, those that are listening, those that are absorbing his teaching and says, who is my family? This is my family. Family is now for God's people, not defined by genetics. It's defined by faith. It's not defined by DNA. It's not defined by how quickly you inherit the gray hair gene. It's not defined by how tall you are or whether or not you're going to get heart disease from them. It's defined by faith. The new family. The primary human relationship is shaped by a unity of faith. Ending at the very place he began with a question of what does it mean to believe in Jesus. I'm going to draw just a couple of very brief applications for us today. Uh, first and foremost, faith is not a passive process entirely. So We like to think that it is. We like to believe that belief is one of those things that just kind of happens to us. Like we just wake up one day and we're like, oh, I believe this now. I don't think of any belief that has ever hit any human that way almost. It's always arrived at it, a process where we, we think through things, where we consume ideas and it, it percolates in the back of our mind and our, our, our psyche stews on it and God uses things. And we arrive and go, I, you know, I think I'm persuaded by that an active process whereby it's cultivated. And we sometimes neglect to think through both, excuse me, belief and unbelief are treated as active things in the Scriptures. And the challenge would be for us, how are we cultivating that active belief? I mean, obviously part of it, you've already got that. Because you're here at church on, you know, six twenty-seven on a Sunday evening, you've already understood that the scriptures are in some fashion important to you, that they nourish you. We have a disc golf friend in Augusta who loves to say, "I I can't remember what the pastor preached on last week, but I view it like food, and all I know is I was nourished and I was fed." She can't remember what preaching is. She doesn't remember all of the sermons the pastor says. But she knows that she has a regular diet of good food and God's word. And she's nourished by it. I think sometimes we might often need to think about the scriptures a bit more like that. In terms of nourishing our own faith. (laughs) Unfortunately, sometimes many of us decide to try those crazy starvation diets. I'll eat once a week. For two hours in the morning and one hour in the evening once a week. And funny enough, we don't feel nourished. Funny enough, we don't feel well along the way. Funny enough, we don't don't feel joy, we don't feel hope, and we don't feel delight. And I were to tell you, if if you were to try that physically with real food, you would feel terrible. You'd feel terrible for a long time. I'm not going to eat anything until next Sunday, and then I'm going to eat for three hours out of the 24. I would say, you're going to die, friend. Like That's awful. Faith is an active thing that is to be cultivated. Secondly, unbelief is to be taken uh, quite seriously. Many of the commentators talk about how this passage is oftentimes kind of difficult to deal with. uh, Not as much uh, from the grammar side of it, but unbelief is hard to deal with because we don't believe in hell anymore. Because we don't really think about the idea of a, a eternal punishment, of an eternal sin, the idea of blasphemy is just not really thought about. Mix that with a culture that has no shame at all. And unbelief is, meh, not that big of a deal. But it's interesting, we just studied Hebrews. It's one of the main points, isn't it, in the whole book? <laughs> Be wary of growing hard in your heart. Be wary, be on guard, be warned about being hardened, about being dulled to the truth. That unbelief might not gain a simple foothold in our own lives. And then lastly, to enjoy the benefits of the salvation that Jesus accomplishes. You see, this faith that he's talking about here is a profound faith. It's an amazing faith, but it's in so many ways, just in these very short verses, a victorious faith followed by delightful faith. I mean, he explains it as if this faith is the byproduct of Jesus conquering the devil. Your faith is the direct result of the devil being defeated. Just the fact that you even have it at all is proof that the devil is being defeated. It's victorious faith. Be excited about that. Rejoice in that. Cultivate it because you cultivate Christ's victory in it. But then further understand that you aren't alone in that victory, but that we together are called to celebrate, to participate in the family of God, those that share this faith together so that as King Jesus continues to work out His victory in creation, we too might share in that victory and in that delight. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the victory that is found in King Jesus. Oh Lord, please forgive us for the ways that we have allowed unbelief to creep in. Give us Your Spirit that we might have those things exterminated.